Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. All right, welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. How's it going, Eric? It's going great. We're having a very lively discussion, a rowdy discussion, blood boiling, high energy before this. <laughs> so I always feel super jazzed. Plus, I have my aha, which is like a bubbly knockoff. Oh, okay. So I like bubbly. Cool. I don't know why anybody would care about this, but I like the bubbly. I, I, I also like Michael Buble. So I always tell people I'm drinking a Buble because I think it's funny. Um, but anyways, <laughs> that's an aside. We have a lot to cover today. Um, I hope we can cover it. If there's something where we need to call it and cut it short, I think that's fine. That's reasonable. Um, but I guess we should just dive right into it to cover the content. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'll start off with the EdTech office hours. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I actually did get a couple of questions from colleagues. Uh, so, you know, in the world of academe, uh, the spring semester is coming to an end. People are going on vacation or going to their conference season or a combination of both. You know, I'm off for quite a while until mid-August. So I work on research and stuff, but it's around this time that people are either traveling or working on something. I tend to get a lot of questions about, and we've had this on the podcast before, what are you know my options for a computer? Now, most people are not, even in you know academia, we're writing, right? We're not doing video editing, podcast editing, though you can do that on any entry-level computer, unless you're doing heavy graphics work or video, there's real no need to have a pro laptop. So people have come to me, spring it's my laptop's quite a few years old i need to refresh what do i have what are my options i should say well this does dovetail kind of into what we're going to talk about with apple had their worldwide developer conference uh, a week ago so we, we're going to dovetail into that one of the announcements was the new macbook air which is looks like a great computer uh debuted with m2 which is their second generation apple silicon it's a modest improvement i think 17 18 percent improvement in speed so it's not if you have the old one from 2020, there's zero reason to upgrade. But if you don't have one or you have one that's older, an Intel computer, uh, the MacBook Air is probably the way to go. Um, you can get it up into 24 gigabytes of RAM, 16 and 24. I would say 16 is the minimum. You can load up the hard drive. So you can spend a lot of money on this thing, but get like a really great kind of prosumer computer. Uh, and I, in the past, if you were an Apple user, um, they have great battery life. I do recommend ordering their stuff closer to when it comes out because the prices don't really change. Uh, the alternative would be to wait for back to school, Chris, because there's that August, yes. September, and then you'll probably get free headphones with it. But if you need it now and you don't care about headphones, then this is a good time to go. So the MacBook Air just released. Um, there's also a, a lot of computers refreshed on the Windows side. I'm going to continue to recommend the Dell XPS 13. It's an excellent, excellent uh, Windows computer. If you really, really don't want a Dell for whatever reason, you don't like the reliability and the excellent prices, and you provide, want something more Mac-like in the Windows sphere, uh, I will recommend uh, something that we can talk about in the technology news section, which is the Surface Laptop Go 2, which is a very good kind of entry-level uh, Surface Laptop from Microsoft. That's all I had to say about uh, laptops. A related question I had is I do know people who are going back to in-person conferences, either in Canada, the States, one of them uh, abroad. 
overseas. And uh, I actually got a really great question. It was, I, I don't, he basically said, I don't want to carry all these chargers anymore because a lot of my colleagues, they don't check luggage because, you know, the lineups at airports are insane right now. It's a disaster. We want to carry as little as humanly possible. Um, in fact, I know somebody who's literally taking like the smallest travel bag I have ever seen. It'll fit in like a prop plane going to the Arctic. And he's taking like a little backpack and that's it. And he's like, anything I need there, I'm going to buy and I'm going to leave it behind. But as part of that, he wants one charger to rule them all very much like uh, Lord of the Rings. So I put a link, um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the wire cutter, which is a, a site that was bought by the New York times that we've recommended before. This article was from December 18th, 2021, but they list some really good um, kind of multi USB charging ones. In particular, there's this Sateki, it's 108 watt USB third generation kind of wall charger. So you could charge it. It's really made for a laptop or a tablet, but you can also charge a phone. Uh, Anchor has a 4.1. They're all USB-A, which is no good. Uh, Anchor has some other ones, but uh, these have power bricks, like the battery chargers. So you can top your phone up if you're not near a wall socket, you know, all the best cables for charging. So they kind of have a summary article of their favorite charging devices. And they include some headphones in there as well, but wall bricks kind of things that you can charge everything with. So you don't have to take like, you know, 10 different bricks with you. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, especially, um, I think like in Europe, they've already made this, uh, uh, decision from the courts where everybody will have to have USB-C uh, so that you don't have yeah. to have multiple cords and stuff. And so, uh, and I believe it's going to uh, happen here as well in, in North America. So, you know, uh, once that happens, at least, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about multiple different uh, cables and, and so on. Yeah. And I mean, USB-A um, chargers are great too, if you're willing to buy the cables. I mean, I have cables that have USB-A and C on the other end. Uh, depends what you're going with, I suppose. It is nice to have yeah. a couple of USB-C to A or A to A just because, um, well, I mean, like USB-A is a better connector in my opinion to C in some ways, it's firmer. So depending on where you are, you may need to connect to something like that. But there's a variety of options. Yeah. You can reduce your kind of cable and uh, charging luggage if you are going to be traveling or even just working out of a campsite. Some people go to solitude camps to do their research. Um, yeah. Okay, so the technology news section is our next section, and we have uh, a crap ton of stuff. Um, we should probably start. So Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, which amazingly they invited journalists to to watch a video. So it was an online video that they watched. They invited people to watch live at the Apple campus, which I find baffling. Um, but that, that aside, um, Apple did release uh, a bunch of updates uh, to their platform. So they did introduce a new MacBook Air. That was the one hardware announcement. I think that was the only one. Um, maybe there's another watch or something, but really it's a software. It's a you know, it's more geared towards uh, developers of software. Uh, Mac Rumors has yeah. put together a monster list of all of the uh, announcements that Apple made. So, and that list is divided into iOS, so for the phone, iPad OS for the iPad, the new Mac OS, which is Mac OS Ventura, Watch OS, the M2 chip, so their latest Apple Silicon uh, next generation rollout of their uh, their desktop chips. 
So I figured we would just cherry pick the list, you and I, uh, and kind of go through things that make the most sense. Did you did you want to start us off? Now, one thing I'm kind of wondering about is, so they did announce uh, from the hardware side, and we touched on it with that um, EdTech office hours, uh, but you know they're releasing the M2 in the 13 inch. So it's a 13 inch MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro. And it looks like to me that uh, they still have on the website, the original MacBook Air. They just lowered well. the price. So the, the, they just lowered the price. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering if maybe, uh, I don't, I don't know if they're going to continue having these devices for a little while. And if I was somebody, you know, looking to get a new computer, I wonder if I would maybe get the older one, if the uh, price difference is there. Because once you, like you were saying, Eric, once you start adding in some of the stuff, you're almost pretty much getting into like the $2,000 range. Yeah, more. On 2,500 to Canadian. Yeah, yeah. And so I, and I, again, depending on people's needs, if they're just using it for like word processing and the basic stuff, uh, I wonder if that uh, original MacBook Air might be the better option. Well, and if you are buying the MacBook Air on education pricing, it's considerably cheaper and new. I'll also point out that the MacBook Air, the M1 from 2020, because it's been a couple of years almost since it was updated. Um, if you were going to go with the cheaper one anyways, I would strongly recommend that people go into the go into uh, Shop for University. So you, that's at the bottom, the footer of the Apple store page online, and also go into refurbished and see if there is a MacBook Air M1 that has 16 gigs of RAM. I would strongly recommend people avoid eight if possible. Uh, you know, the hard drive size that you require in a refurbished model. Uh, again, I use an Intel MacBook Pro. I think it's fine. I will update it at some point, but all of the stuff works for whatever we do day to day. There's no reason to upgrade unless you need to. But if you do need to, um, buy the best that you can and try to get a deal because there's honestly, like, you know, sometimes a $150, $200 discount on refurbished, which is often just that somebody returned it. Yeah. And they, you know, and they're faster to get because of the supply chain shortages. The refurbished are actually in stock. They actually have those now where new ones may be back ordered and stuff like that. So that's something to keep in mind. I would also say that Apple has certain key configurations of their devices in stock in the store where others are not. So yeah. if what you want check and, and let's say you want the new one or you want the M1 and the configuration is like a standard configuration that they have in the store. Base models are always available in the store and some non-custom where they double the RAM and stuff like that, like simple upgrades. Check to see if your local store has it. Typically, a lot of what people are saying is that with this backlogs with supply chain stuff, you know, buy what you need. I, I think what happens is, is that these Hardcore people go in and they order these super custom configurations. This is particularly the case that the pro series computers. I'm like a prosumer. I'm, like, I'm a power user, but I'm not like a graphics developer, right? So, you know, a base model MacBook Pro with maybe a bigger hard drive is more than sufficient for someone like me. And and more and just for doing a podcast, I mean, that would cover all our bases. You're Chris, you have your M1 Mac Mini, which is awesome a super, super performant, like a MacBook Air would probably suit me as well. So if I want one other tip for people who, if you're upgrading hardware, see if 
what you need is also happens to be a kind of core common, one of the core common configurations that Apple or has, because often the Apple store will always have stock reserved for them. Um, same thing with Dell, if there's a dealer or Best Buy, um, there's certain configurations that are, they've figured out that those are the most likely that people are going to buy. Usually the entry, the mid and the super high end one are usually in stock everywhere. So I wouldn't recommend ordering to the, from the site. Um, unless you need some very specific configuration, just as a tip. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, maybe one thing, like there is quite a bit from the, the developers conference. Should we start with the maybe Mac? Just a, uh, well, I, I wonder if just a, even in general, uh, one thing that I, I just wanted to, um, you know, beyond uh, the tech side of things that I, I wanted to touch on was uh, there's another article that we'll include uh, from TechCrunch where um, it's all the things that Apple Sherlocked. And so, so you, by Sherlocking- with Sherlocking? Okay, that's good, we're gonna explain Yeah, that. exactly. And so so basically what Sherlocking is, is that, uh, you know, just by them, uh, and this is something that's become really popular amongst people in uh, Apple, is uh, where they've released something that has made something else obsolete. And, uh, and so I, I, I don't think maybe even most people may not realize because they are, you know, the most valuable company in the, the world with all these resources at their disposal and having tons of cash. When they make an announcement, it's, it can be a big catastrophic, you know, uh, impact on other uh, companies. So for example, one of the things that Apple has released were announced uh, at the developers conference was uh, the what they call Apple Pay Later. And so there's there's companies out there like Klarna and uh, Affirm that you know they're full on uh, uh, startup companies that are that's their business model that will allow uh, consumers to split payments. Uh, and so with Apple, what they're doing is uh, they're splitting into four uh, installments, and they've created a separate company called Apple Finance. So just like, you know, with the uh, vehicles, uh, Toyota, they have their Toyota finance. And now you have Apple has their own division just for going and financing things. And so, I mean, I it, right now you see a lot of tech companies going and doing layoffs. And, um, you know, uh, it, I, I just wonder what's going to happen in the next little while. And, you know, further to that, I mean, maybe just going off of some of the announcements. So one thing that Apple has now introduced is this feature called continuity camera. And so that allows you to go and take your iPhone, attach it. And so they're working with Belkin to go and develop this uh, mount that you can put on your uh, monitor or your MacBook, um, uh, if it is a, the laptop, you can actually use your iPhone as a webcam. And so now I look at it, like imagine companies like Logitech, you know, what, what are they going to do when you can literally, everybody has a, a smartphone. If you can go and use that smartphone for a webcam, what is Logitech going to do? Uh, from the password side of things, Apple released uh, pass keys. Well, and so now you'll be able to go. I was going to say, go before ahead. we go into pass key, I don't want to interrupt, but that continuity camera. So like the, the, the app that allowed people to do that before was called Camo, which I have used and works pretty well. But the problem is, is that they're, they're always at a disadvantage because there's only so much hardware as a third-party app developer who's trying to make the phone a webcam for a Mac. 
within the same ecosystem. They only have so many permissions that they're allowed to access in terms of hardware features, you know, lens yeah. effects. So it was like, it worked and it was okay. Uh, and it does some things different. I have some add-ons that Apple isn't doing, but like now Apple integrated their idea, but because it's integrated with the security wise, you can use like all of the cameras to their full potential. So like, what are they going to, like you said, what are they going to do, right? <laughs> like, why would you buy that? Unless it had some yeah. value add-on from a business perspective that you needed. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's a good point that you brought up because on the software side, like that Camo is the Sherlock app. And then on the hardware side, there's companies like Logitech who are developing this, uh, you know, hardware. And so basically just by Apple making that one announcement and opening up that feature, you know, big impact, right? Like, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. Uh, I what mean, was the other? Camel, I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, on the Windows side and Android side and, and so on, maybe it'll still be fine. But on the Apple uh, ecosystem, I mean, why would you even bother uh, downloading Camel or even getting a Logitech webcam? Well, I mean... I don't really want to use my phone personally as my webcam. I need to use my phone sometimes while I'm using my computer. So I don't have two phones because I'm not a drug dealer. So I don't have a burner phone sitting around. <laughs> well, I mean, for real, like, I mean, like I'm going to, I'm using my phone. So like, I'm not going to do that. Um, I don't yeah. think, I, I think it would replace, like if you don't have a webcam and you need a better webcam occasionally, that's what camo was for. But, you know, my Logitech webcam is really good. It's reliable because it's plugged in. It doesn't rely on some sort of wireless thing that can be interrupted. Um, there's very low latency because it's a hardware wired device. So I still think there's value in third-party accessories, uh, especially if you don't have a webcam built in. Like if I had a, the new iMac, like my my mom got the new the newer iMac. She doesn't need a webcam. The webcam is fine that it has built in in it. Yep. Uh, but this one has a directional microphone and it has some value adds that I think are better. Um, but like I said, for if you only need a webcam, sometimes maybe you're doing a virtual job interview and your phone is always going to be better than the computer, then that's a use case that makes sense. I, it always struck me as odd that Camo was such a standalone app that people would go and use it like long term. I guess if they're traveling and they don't want to travel with another webcam, though the webcam's pretty small. I don't know. What if you need to answer a phone call? Yeah. Well, I don't, uh, again, I mean, it's just, a, I guess the point is that, you know, uh, obviously uh, with Apple now doing that, it is gonna impact their business. Oh yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's not as many people that are gonna go and download it. And even I think on the Logitech side, it's. Uh, uh, again, maybe especially for certain people, like in terms of our audience, like students, maybe they don't want to go and spend the extra money. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, just from a budget standpoint, and you, like, like I said, you, most people do have smartphones at least. Yeah. And if it's not something you right. use every day, there's no read to buy. There's no need to buy a hundred dollar, um, webcam, like the one I use every single day, if you're only using it occasionally. Yeah. Right. So I, I think yeah. it makes sense. Maybe, maybe what we can do, Chris, uh, because if we, the Sherlock features are going to start to go over, I, should we go from, um, uh, do you want to cover more about the MacBook Air or do we want to start with Mac OS Ventura? 
Uh, I mean, sure, you can, uh, if there's anything addition in, uh, in terms of the, the MacBook. So, so the one thing that's used, and I'm thinking just for educators, like why, why would I want this new computer? Yeah. It's more powerful. So M1 was Apple's first Mac silicon, and then they rolled it out on their iPads. So now it's called M2. That's it. It's, you know, I think it's 18% faster. It allows for more memory. So you, 16 gigabytes uh, for M1 was the most you could get on a MacBook Air or the MacBook Pro 13-inch. And now it's 24 gigabytes, which is a lot of memory. Um, so if you need a lot of memory and you don't need a pro computer, this is a good way to go. It'll be a lot cheaper than 3000, even if you spend 2000, right? Um, it has a notch, which I think is really stupid. Why would you have that on a computer? Um, it would totally cover my menu bar because my menu bar has so many things in it, but that's aside. It's a new design, it's thinner, it's more boxy. It's no longer the wedge shape. It comes in, uh, two different kinds of silver, more or less light silver, space gray, which is dark silver, and it comes in a black. And it's, um, you know, better graphics and stuff like that. So if you play games on it, but it's just a better MacBook Air. That's all I would say from a hardware side. And it also brings back uh, the MagSafe magnetic charging that was awesome. That oh, was taken true. away. Yeah. That was then re-rolled out in the MacBook Pro. Uh, so if you don't want your computer to be tripped over and thrown across the room, that was a great feature that they never should have removed at all to begin with. So that's back. I guess what's most yep. important to the Mac um, for educators, uh, and that's on the software side. So they at WWDC is when they announced their new software operating system. So now we have Mac OS Ventura. Um, and there's... You know, there's a bunch of features, um, you know, there's a clock and like a proper weather app, whatever. Um, there's a redesigned system settings. So the settings uh, is a lot more like that list that you would have in the iPad or the iPhone. It's more like that. It's more has a design that's similar if you're coming from another Apple device. So there's some consistency and usability. Um, I think the more interesting stuff is around more the multitasking. Um, so there's some huge improvements to spotlight search. Um, obviously it allows for that continuity camera. I, don't, I think it also allows you to pick up phone calls on the Mac from an iPhone and FaceTime and then go back and forth. Previously, you, if like I got a phone call and I answered it with one device, I couldn't, that's it, right? I have to hang up and call yeah. again. So I think you can move back and forth now. Um, it does, there's a bunch of like, if you use it as your only computer and you like to play games too, like it's interesting that some students like to do that. I noticed they have a gaming laptop so they can do homework and game. This is why I have a game console. So I don't mix those things, but that aside, they're, they're just, their platform is great for games. Now it's a lot better than it used to be. The gaming on the Mac used to be really bad. And uh, so these huge titles are now starting to come because their graphics are so good. I think probably the most interesting feature from a productivity standpoint though, is the stage manager. So we've had multiple desktops, of course, overlapping windows on the Mac. So this, what did they call it? What do they call it? Mission control, where you can see all your windows at the same time. So we have that still, yeah. but there's this thing called stage manager where you can kind of group on the left-hand side of the screen. I don't know if you can move it to right or left. You can basically group little teeny window previews of all the overlapping windows. So you can, let's say you're working in notes and mail, and a browser tab, you can form that as a group in stage manager. And then you can have multiple kind of workspace groups. Here's the way I can describe it. Chris, you're of a similar age to me. Do you remember the old Superman movies? 
specifically do you remember yeah. the superman 2 where there was like the evil superman and superman uh trapped them in the phantom zone which was like that two-dimensional plane <laughs> yeah. that's what stage yeah. manager looks like it looks like <laughs> it looks like your apps are trapped in the phantom zone which is what it was called uh it's well worth looking up this if folks out there if you have no idea what i'm talking about youtube it and then youtube stage manager and it will become self-evident i promise you but it's kind of a strange grouping of tabs um that they're doing is that, i guess that's the most uh important productivity productivity feature that i can think of would you yeah, say that's interesting for sure yeah probably i mean that's uh uh, again, they always make these subtle kind of uh, changes and, um, you know, uh, the, this is one of the, I guess, the things, especially like even with that continuity camera, right, um, it, where they're, they're controlling both the hardware and the software, it just makes it that much more powerful for you. Yeah, uh, and basically that's kind of, you know, what it is. I mean, I've heard mixed things about Stage Manager a lot. It's actually not a new idea. There used to be another feature similar to that on the Mac before, I think. So this is kind of like a resurrecting a feature that used to be there, but I don't remember what it was called. Um, I may have to come back to this at some point. It does dovetail though, Chris, into a longer list of changes, which was the iPad. I, I thought that the iPad was really yeah. the star of the show. So iPad OS has really become a lot more like the, the Mac. So if you, the iPad OS, will support if you have an M1 powered Mac, MacBook Pro or MacBook Air, and there's a big controversy around this. It will support external displays with that stage manager and overlapping windows. And you can turn it off and just have, you know, the regular multitasking windowing that you get on an iPad. But if you turn it on, you can enable stage manager. So it's something you can enable or disable um, in the settings, which I find quite interesting. There's a big controversy around this though, because they say you have to have an M1 chip because they said those devices have faster storage and they allow virtual memory swapping, which the old computers don't have. Though so somebody said, well, the MacBook, sorry, the iPad Air has an M1, but it doesn't have, the base model actually doesn't have the memory requirements that Apple suggests and Stage Manager still works on it. So there's some controversy that Apple wants people to buy a new device, even though the old ones could run it probably fine. Yeah, yeah, because I think uh, the like our iPads will not uh, uh, allow some of these software features, right? And I think they would run it fine, even with some limitations. So I think that yeah. uh, that's bogus on Apple's part. I don't find their argument to be compelling. And I, I suspect they may actually have to backtrack from that and allow older devices to use it, even if it's slower than they would prefer. That's my opinion. Yeah. Um, we'll see. But there is interesting that we're getting multi-tap, multi-user windowing on the iPad. So this is valuable to students and educators. If, if this is a device that you travel with and you have access to an external monitor somewhere where you can plug in, technically, if that is good enough for you, you don't have to bring a laptop as well. It can work as a, you can kind of transform it into a desktop, which I think is kind of compelling. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And uh, I mean, even cost-wise, it's uh, it's a lot cheaper too, right? I, I think probably did, uh, we might have even mentioned this uh, in our uh, previous episode, uh, but um, I think right now maybe the the best, most economical choice might be the uh, iPad Air out of the various devices that they have. Probably, 
Yeah, probably. And but I, I suspect all the those iPads will get updated quite soon. So I would actually tell people to hold off um, as much as they can because that'll be M two very shortly, I think. Um, what else is in iPad OS that's relevant? Um, so there's the multitasking, there's a proper weather app coming, there's a new lock screen. Uh, the iPhone is allowing all these customizations in the lock screen with iOS 16. So iPad OS 16 gets some of that. Um, there's a new interesting collaborative feature um, or a new app called Freeform. And there's a new, what I yeah. found most interesting was the sharing. So for instance, if you start like a pages document or like a keynote presentation, you can share it with me kind of like Google Docs you can share it with me through Apple's iMessage. And then the, the message thread, the conversation thread is tied to all the things that you share. So it kind of ties together as a, like, let's say we're in a group when we have a, a group message for our podcast, it kind of ties together everything that you shared in the thread plus the discussion thread, very much like Slack, how you can import documents into it. But there's also this free form app that they're rolling out, which is basically a collaborative whiteboard that you can draw on. And I talk about Sherlocking. I think it's like over, like I'm never going to go back. If there's other people are using an iPad or a Mac and they want to do this, this is, looks way better than explain everything, which is the app I've historically used. <laughs> like this is so much better. Uh, and I don't, is it, you know, I wasn't clear to me, can you use this just as a single user or is it only available as like a shared thing? I mean, to my knowledge, uh, basically it, uh, this free form, it, it's, it allows collaboration between you and your team workers, uh, teammates, uh, you know, to work on something uh, as a digital whiteboard. So yeah, like from a Sherlocking standpoint, I mean, uh, off the top of my head, I, I would look at companies like uh, Figma, Mural, Mural, like game over, right? I mean, for them, for at why, least in why that, would you, I go yeah. and in, unless you're uh, like you're working cross-platform? I, I mean, that's the only thing I would say. Yeah, but I mean, the you know, Eric, like the subscription costs for those. Yeah, uh, you know, they they started adding up, and so now, like, I mean, it, again, this is where um, uh, it's a big impact because you're going to be able to go and get this for free across all the Apple devices and uh, their services. Oh yeah, right? I and totally, so I totally agree. So I have a challenge that I want us to undertake when this releases. So we historically, for people who are interested in inside baseball, we organize our rundowns on Google docs. And I think that's fine. Can, if we can put in text and hyperlinks into this, I want to see if we can do our rundowns with multiple free forms for the episodes. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Well, because it's cool because you get yeah, to draw and take notes, and I, I like I like whiteboarding with people. I think it would be really interesting. Like, would it make us yeah. more collaborative, or would it change the way we lay out an episode if we were to draw it out in some sort of collaborative whiteboard? Yeah, no, I I think that's uh, we'll give that a try for sure once they release this uh, feature. And then we should you know write about it and submit it to a, a journal as a scholarly essay or something. That's what I think. Anyways, uh, that's that's the idea. It would be interesting. Um, is there anything else on iPadOS? There's no calculator app. They bring all these iPhone apps to the iPad, but they're not bringing a calculator. This seems like a huge oversight. That's like such a basic app. I would encourage everyone to go buy a pcalc. It's worth every penny, um, especially if you do any scientific calculations, but, but they're not bringing that. Um, we covered the stage manager M1 iPad scandal. 
there is some sort of like handwriting handwriting straightening feature to make your uh, printing or handwriting look better. Now, historically, yeah. I've used apps that do this, and often they make it worse. So I I'll believe it when I see it. It's quite possible that it will function, um, but I'm I'm skeptical. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did you want to move on to iOS and kick us off with that? Uh, so on the iOS side of things, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a number of features that they're uh, releasing and um, uh, a lot of this, uh, they're one of the biggest things is especially with the older phones they are dropping support now. So, yeah. you know, 6S, uh, 7, the original uh, SE uh, and some more. Um, you know, uh, there's other things that they're uh, releasing from like the fitness app is going to become standard and you, you won't require the Apple Watch. Um, you know, uh, that uh, spatial audio is going to use that true depth camera. Uh, there's going to be some more uh, keyboard haptics and uh, for vibration as you type and, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a a slew of things. I don't know. Is there any certain features that you think that educators and uh, you know students might be interested in? Yeah, there's a lot of lifestyle stuff, and there's a huge laundry list of changes with all these things. And we're just trying to highlight the ones for productivity that are the most useful to our audience, right? The one thing I was most interested in, and I, I assume this is coming to all devices. So a lot of these things that come to iOS. Uh, the, the article that we'll link in the show notes has a huge list for the iPhone and then a smaller list for the iPad and the Mac. Though many of these features are coming to all of them anyways. It's the notifications. Uh, so that, that focus mode where you can be like, my work mode kicks in, do not disturb with certain parameters, either at a certain time every day or at a certain location using a geofence. I use this all the time. As soon as I get to work, focus mode kicks in. And I only get notifications from very select people and messages and calls. I don't get anything else. I don't even get calendar notifications. I don't need them. Um, so mm -hmm. I think there's more nuance um, uh, to notifications. I know that there's web push notifications are being um, rolled out. There's gonna You can customize the type of notifications that you can get on the lock screen. And I think that ties in with those focus modes that kind of do not disturb. Again, there's all this concern about devices causing distraction. And I, I see that with students. So uh, any of these do not disturb custom, do not disturb uh, modes that you can create and you can decide the people that can contact you in the apps that are allowed to make noise and get through during a work time or whatever. Um, they're rolling out a lot more of those changes, which I think is positive because I've turned off notifications yeah. for most apps. I never want to hear from them ever unless I open them. And if I'm working, I don't want to just, we live in a distracting world. So I think Apple has realized that this is a problem they've created and now they have to fix it. Actually, maybe one thing that is uh, probably a, a cool feature that they're releasing is uh, if you're sending out an email or an iMessage, um, you can actually edit it. Oh, you can remove and, uh, it too. Can, right? Yeah, you, with the email side, you can actually uh, unsend it within a certain you know, uh, period of time. With the iMessage, you can uh, edit or unsend up to 15 minutes after sending something. Which is kind of cool. So, now does the person have to, what if they've seen it? Can then you remove it or if it's, if it's unread? I'm not sure. That's that my question. Specific. So if you read something, am I like taking messages out of your phone? Right? 
<laughs> what kind of accountability does this allow for? Um, yeah. Something says someone really ridiculous. So that, yeah, that's true. That's interesting that you can kind of retract and edit if only Twitter would allow version control. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a bunch of dropped support, by the way, for Mac OS Ventura, I think 2017 and later for a lot of machines, including like MacBook. So like iMac 2017 and later you have to have uh, iMac Pro is supported. MacBook Air has to be 2018 or later. Uh, MacBook Pro 17, 2017 and later. So, I mean, that's, you're not going to run it. I mean, mine's a 2019. It's uh, this is a particularly large cutoff year. This isn't always the case, uh, but this may be that, you know, certain things are Apple Silicon only, so they won't work on Intel, which is kind of mm -hmm. sad. I kind of like having Intel. I could run Windows on it. I can't do that anymore. Um, other stories, I think that's pretty much it. Actually, we moved through the Apple stuff a lot faster than I originally anticipated, so that's actually pretty good. Is there any other things that you want yeah. to add? Uh, I mean, I, I guess the uh, other thing that, um, uh, and again, like there's there's apps out there that like from a Sherlocking standpoint, um, you know, like for example, uh, there's apps that, that where you can actually go and monitor your medication. Well, now Apple is allowing <laughs> you true. through uh, Apple Health, yeah, being able to go and uh, track your medication, right? And so some of these kind of things. And so I don't know. It's it's kind of interesting. It's like Apple. They're they're pretty much executing its vision of controlling our digital life um, like a a metronome and uh, you know taking no prisoners along the way yeah. and uh, unfortunately I I think a lot of this um, like when I look at it uh, while I I advocate for PCs as well as for Apple but I, I think I'm probably going to favor the the Apple products as opposed to the competitors and so maybe some things like. Uh, you know, like from the whiteboarding side, I mean, maybe I will close out my Miro and my Miro uh, accounts, right? Um, maybe the Logitech camera may not be as necessary. We'll see. I bet you Belkin is going to probably charge like a hundred bucks just for, the, for a piece of plastic. <laughs> for a piece of plastic. So it is ridiculous. I, I think we should, uh, I think that's a, that's a pretty good summary. As we said, uh, yeah. we, we did it. It's good enough, right? We can always come back to some of these things. I think what we'll do is that as some of these features become fleshed out, once people get their hands on the betas of these operating systems, we can come back and we can say how these things really work, particularly if people have created videos, because some of them I can't talk about because there was like a screenshot and I really don't understand how it's going to function. Even the stage manager, I'm a little bit unconvinced how that's going to, how that's going to work. Um, there was something that I wanted to talk about in the tech side from Microsoft to make this not the Apple show. Um, so I did mention the Surface Go 2 laptop. That's a great entry-level laptop, uh, you know, 11th generation Intel. Uh, Intel's chips are very competitive with Apple's. They caught up on stuff real quick. So it's not like Apple has a huge lead uh, on Windows computers. And in fact, in many ways, they don't. Um, but this is a great portable, a small laptop. Um, I'm going to include an article from XDA developers. I, again, I don't want to rehash this because I did mention it in the tech above. But again, if you are looking for like a more entry level writing computer, you're a student, you're an academic, and you're on the Windows side, the Surface computers are really good. Uh, and this is a particularly more friendly price compared to the Dells and stuff like that. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. 
One thing that has yeah, released that sure. Apple, that Microsoft talked about some time ago is the adaptive kit, which I think is interesting. So we've talked about accessibility and usability on this podcast before. So Microsoft for their Surface computers uh, had, I think in their last conference, whatever their Apple equivalent is, the build, is that what it's called? They have this adaptivity kit, which is like 15 bucks or 20 bucks. It's basically a sticker pack, which doesn't seem very exciting, but it's really interesting because you can put um, stickers that have a tactile feel uh, on certain keys. You can put like uh, really super strong, like 3M adhesive like loops, uh, things that make maybe people who have um, poor vision or sometimes some poor hearing or uh, stabilization motor control issues, they make their devices a little bit more useful. So this isn't so much a tech thing, it's a very, um, kind of analog way to make technology more useful for people perhaps with a disability. Um, but I think it's really interesting. And it's not just, you know, for rare disabilities, as, as people get older, um, stabilization control. So they have, Microsoft's done some really interesting work um, with adaptivity for their existing Surface devices. So I thought that was an interesting thing to point out. You know, there's things that like how to make, you know, outlines you can put over top of some of the ports to make them more identifiable if you had, you know, if you were colorblind, which I also am colorblind, um, things like that. So I thought that was a cool thing that they released. It's a very inexpensive solution to a very uh, a problem that needs to be solved, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah, I mean, even uh, just with that Surface uh, laptop too, I would say, you know, because it is metal, like it's aluminum, uh, you're getting like a premium, uh, looking device for a fraction of uh, the cost compared to something like the, you know, uh, Apple's products. So I yeah. think it is a good option. And yeah, I mean, it, this is where uh, the Microsoft, they're differentiating themselves and focusing in on uh, things that maybe are overlooked. Uh, I mean, this uh, accessibility is a big factor. Yeah. And Apple's done a great job on the software side, but they haven't done hardware adaptations that you can add to devices to make them more, uh, like so like if you uh, opening computers for some people is really difficult laptops right like just opening the shell so that's why there is a loop that you can stick on to help you open it if you don't have you know two limbs to work with and stuff like that they showed all these things even for elderly populations uh in there so like their argument was is that most of us will be disabled in some way at some point but some people get there faster which i thought was an interesting way to put it like we all require some modification of our activity as we age. And so they've, they've kind of um, embraced that and thought of practical solutions so people can use their technology. I don't know if Apple's done anything like that that you can customize yourself. So I, th I think it's a cool uh, and very valuable thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last tech story was from, I took from, uh, was multiple sites that reported, but I took it from uh, Paul Throt's uh, blog, throt.com. He's covered, uh, Microsoft in the Windows space for decades. He's an excellent journalist, but it's actually about Firefox. So I'm one of those crazy people uh, that uses Firefox. I don't use Chrome. I really tried. I tried to go back to Chrome, Chris, because I know that there's, it's supposed to work a little bit better on uh, video conferencing, but I, I don't like the browser. I've always hated that you can't have the uh, bookmarks on a slide out on the left-hand side. I don't understand why this is so difficult. I don't want to navigate through like a drop-down list of my multiply nested folders. Like it's a usability disaster, but also I don't like the data that they collect from those browsers. I don't trust 
um, the Google suite uh, and particularly their yeah. browser for that at all. So Firefox is very good about privacy and they're unrolling this total cookie protection as a default feature rather than an optional. So in a nutshell, basically they're dividing up the cookies that your browser saves into um, buckets that are website dependent because some websites will look at all your cookie history across that you've collected across multiple sites to figure out, to do cross-site tracking, and then to analyze where you're likely to go after they visit our site, et cetera. So Firefox has made that very, very difficult by having a cookie jar for Facebook and one for you know, Google search and another for Amazon, rather than a cookie jar that any of those sites can access through your browser information. Yeah, no, that's awesome feature. It's a, you know, and this is where like, I, just like you, I mean, I've never, to be honest, I, I've never used Chrome. Uh, I've tried it once because, uh, yeah. you know, from a Google Meet perspective, but uh, I'm just, uh, I try to avoid it uh, at all costs. And so I mainly use Firefox. And then uh, for certain things that I don't care about, I, I use Safari on my um, laptop here. Safari is pretty uh, good. My Apple for device. Yeah. Um, so. And then on the, the PC side, again, I use Firefox mainly. And then if I need to, I'll, I'll use something like Edge just for things that I don't care about. Yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, like I'm, I'm a big Firefox user. It works really well. It's very fast. So I, I'd strongly recommend people check it out if privacy is your shtick. I guess we can go on to our EdTech news articles. We have a bunch. I don't know if we're going to hit them all, but we can try. Um, I guess the number one that was interesting, uh, Chris, was this article from the Washington Post. So it was titled Pandemic Disrupted Learning for US Teens, but Not Evenly Polling Shows. And I brought this up because you talked about this in one of our predictions. In fact, you brought this up for both of our predictions episodes, which was that you know there's pros and cons to online and face-to-face -face learning, but really where it hurts people is the digital divide, who has access to what technology. And so they're the Washington Post is uh, reporting on research that was done by Pew Research Center, which is a pretty good uh, statistical research center, uh, which is, you know, all their stuff is freely available online. Um, and basically looked at, you know, the surveys and how people felt about online learning. You know, a lot of people wanted to go back. A lot of people liked hybrid, but like the people that were really behind in terms of being able to access homework were people who just didn't have a computer at home or didn't have good internet. And it kind of highlights like, yeah, this is super exciting that we've all learned to do this online digital stuff. But for some people, this is really expensive, particularly when we're talking about K to 12, because everybody has to go to K to 12, right? In the university, perhaps you can make some assumptions about what equipment should they should have to come here. But that's not that's not the case in the public school system. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, it was interesting how they even highlighted how certain ethnic yeah. uh, groups and uh, you know their um, willingness to go back to the classroom or stay online or hybrid, and so it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, basically, at the end of it, I think a lot of people there. What it comes down to is there isn't a one size that fits all for a kind of experience for people, and uh, I think we're seeing this uh, beyond even education. Just people want more flexibility and options. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose the solution might be that if there was, just like there's private schools and charter schools, I know that was a hot topic for people, 
I've never had a problem with them personally, but like I get where people are coming from. You could have, you know, people who want online, you could have an online preference. I think the concern too is that, you know, there's still like a minimum curriculum you're supposed to cover, right? And so the, if you've designed uh, learning for online environment, it's tough to say, you know, which has covered it better is the face-to-face -face or the online have advantages or disadvantages on particular curriculum. I suppose you could say that's the case by going from grade to grade, school to school, teacher to teacher, but it kind of introduces another dimension <laughs> of, of what people have an asterisk behind what they know and they don't know, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there was a similar kind of a related article uh, that was posted and just trying to bring it up, the print. And I'm not familiar with this publication at all. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I'm not at all familiar with it. But it, maybe it's from, it's from India? Is it an Indian publication? This particular article was reporting from New Delhi, but I don't know if the publication itself is from there. But the, the publication is, the title of it is called Schools, Universities, and the Metaverse? Question mark. Why Virtual Reality? is catching ad tech's attention. And it basically just talks about, you know, the pros and cons of uh, kind of having a, rather than having, a, you know, a Zoom school, so to speak, you actually have like a digital world you can put on a headset and you can go into, and it's a much more social and interactive digital experience that, I, that more closely um, mirrors um, the face-to-face -face experience, than, which is what's lost in a lot of online learning, right? So the idea of VR being a better um, uh, online experience, at least in terms of coming closer to the face-to-face -face social experience, I guess, is there. Though it's interesting that they did talk about where the idea of metaverse comes from, which is from Neil Stevenson's 1992 <laughs> novel, which I have, called Snow Crash, which is this terrible dystopic where the world ends, so everybody lives in VR just to escape reality. So the fact that they called it the metaverse in a real company, Facebook, is a terrible idea because it's taken after this horrible, horrible book. Like it's a, it's a dystopic science fiction novel. So they didn't, I don't think that that was the best naming scheme. Um, but, you know, they talk about um, basically the, the different types of tiers or of interactivities. It seems to me that this is best suited for higher education than K to 12, A, because of the expense and also the bandwidth. I've had some serious bandwidth issues working in things like alt space VR if I don't have a really good connection with a really good headset. Like this is a pretty expensive um, setup, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you think about VR and the metaverse? Like in this article, they're talking about, uh, you know, potentially owning property in VR and having like, you know, non-fungible tokens integrated with your homework and stuff like this. Does this, does any of this make any sense? <laughs> I didn't quite well, understand yeah. that part. I liked a lot of this article. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I think that whole, that side of things, they're, they're still trying to figure it out. In fact, actually, funny enough, um, uh, this past week, uh, Jack Dorsey, uh, he came out with, uh, and so he was the, one of the founders of Twitter, um, and he's moved everything over to Square, which has been rebranded as Block, uh, based on blockchain. But uh, anyways, um, 
he uh, came out with, uh, you know, forget about Web3. He's come up with Web5. What is that? <laughs> and so, and so uh, I, I think from my, just, uh, you know, preliminary, just, you know, uh, reviewing this, maybe he's just combining and uh, Web2 and Web3. So when you add two and three together, it makes five. Maybe that's the logic behind it. And so he skipped over four. Uh, but uh, again, having that uh, kind of decentralized uh, um, internet, uh, but also having uh, some other aspects from like identity and uh, you know commerce and and so on and so forth. So, so what is the again, decentralized we'll probably... part? What does that mean? So the, right now, like with the yeah. internet, everything is just open, right? It's a, it's a free for all. And so the, the decentralized uh, side of things is where uh, maybe you could actually go and not be reliant on uh, certain players out there right? and uh, even just having some of that transparency uh, where everything is kind of controlled. And that's where, I mean, there's, there is a lot of impact, like from the blockchain technology. I think a lot of times, like when we look at it, like with this crypto and right now there's a huge crash happening in crypto, right? Uh, but there are practical applications where you probably could make, um, uh, it, it would be a beneficial thing. And I think where some of that, where it is maybe coming up is, um, let's say for example, in real estate, Right, where if you actually had a digital transaction representation that you could actually go and look at, I think from an education standpoint, really at, at the end of the day, probably where we'll see it in the future is right now. What's the process, let's say, for getting transcripts and getting your credentials mm -hmm. verified? So sharing it, proof of work, basically. Yeah. So I, I, I think that this is where. This is where some of the actual applications, which would be helpful, would uh, where you'd be able to go and do this, right? But uh, we don't. We're still figuring it out, right? I mean, this is this is why there there was a huge increase, and in, uh, you know, a lot of people. I mean, I've seen people just off of those NFTs um, uh, be able to go and make hundreds of thousands of dollars and buy houses, <laughs> and now those same people maybe they're losing money, right? But what is, so, um, so like the idea of a non-fungible token, this is a total, I mean, we, this is nothing to do with this article, but I don't understand. So basically, as I understand it, a digital object can be edited and forged and copied. You can copy a PDF. So non-fungible yeah. token, if non-fungible, fungibility. So gold is fungible. I can melt down gold coins to make a bar. It's fungible, yep. infinitely fungible. I can't, so something that's non-fungible is not copyable. And because it's so secure and non-fungible, plus it's on a ledger like the blockchain that makes digital goods somewhere more real because they, you'd be more assured in terms of confidence that it wasn't a copy. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so like, you know, people's counter argument is, uh, you know, like, uh, you could just download an image or a video or whatever just off the internet, right? But the value is having that authenticity that you know that this is X number, that there's that ledger and that transaction. So, you know, this term, this NFT, uh, it actually was uh, created by a company here in uh, Canada, uh, in Vancouver, in fact. And uh, so uh, the, the company is called, uh, well, previously it was called Axiom Zen, but then they spun off this division uh, and uh, 
their first uh, mainstream version of NFTs was CryptoKitties. So you would basically be able to go and take a a virtual cat, kind of like those Tamaguchis and and so on, and be able to breed these cats. and they got huge press. I mean, there were some uh, cats that digital cats that went for a hundred thousand dollars U.S. And later on, that same company, they were able to raise. Uh, I believe they're now again. They're in Vancouver. They're valued at about like nine billion dollars. Uh, and uh, so Dapper Labs, they're the ones who created NBA Top Shot. They're doing uh, this for the UFC for the NFL, and so. There is a good kind of maybe practical example of this where if you look at like trading cards, right? I'm sure when you grew up, like I myself, I had NHL, NBA, and so on, right? Now, if you are to go and authenticate that and make sure it's of a certain, you know, uh, uh, where it's mint, you have to pay money to go and authenticate that it actually is legitimate uh, if it's of a certain quality. Now, instead, imagine now with the blockchain, you have that ledger. It's one out of, let's say, 4,000, and you own that number, whatever it is. And you can now, instead of even having somebody authenticate that, you can go and transmit it and sell it to somebody digitally. So there is value to it. I think there's different. uh, Yeah, I guess I'm not debating that there's not value to being able to authenticate something digitally. Um, and so like proving that a credential is real or a certificate is real, like, let's say you go, like, I just did a certificate program. I talked about it last, last episode or the last non rewind episode we did. So, uh, it was that pose program for open scholarship through UBC. They like emailed me a, a certificate of proof of completion. Now, I'm sure somebody could go edit the certificate and say that they completed it, but that's a, like a kind of a low stakes thing. So I understand that. I guess it's interesting to me from a goods perspective, like there's only so much land in the city of Calgary or New York or Los Angeles, right? So yeah. if you own a house here, you can't spin up a new city. It doesn't work like that. There's only so much land on earth where, okay, so there's, there's artificial scarcity if you buy something like, let's say property, because I'm hearing about property in the metaverse, right? Okay. But then somebody just creates a new world in the metaverse. Like, so it's like infinite, like your property, the volatility would be crazy. Like it would, it would, you could just, okay, well, yeah, there's a limit. There's, we've created a finite amount in this area. So we'll just create a whole new planet, right? Like it's, or like digital cats. We only made three cats. I'm like, yeah, but there's a hundred companies or a thousand companies making cats. Like, why is your cat more valuable than their cat? Like it's a, how would you there's no real restriction of the good technically they can just replicate it and then and then make that non-fungible right yeah no for sure and i mean this is nothing new right i mean this uh, this is something that uh, people have looked at in the past right it's uh uh, where you would have uh, companies even some of them they take a a bit of a gamble and you know uh, maybe there might be something like Nike where where mm-hmm. they'll go and create like a, a virtual store just to kind of see what what might happen and maybe it's more of a marketing uh, aspect right uh, but I I think where the value will come in and I mean this is just me uh, kind of future casting I, I suppose right but uh, I think in the future companies I mean really you have to look at what is the actual tangible 
right impact in the real world and so what what does that entail and uh, and i i mean i think these uh, this dapper labs i mean this it is a good application who knows right now they have uh, uh, they're going under uh, some turmoil as well uh, just with the, the whole crypto kind of crash and stuff but uh, again uh, imagine if you had the ability, because you're at, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm at a, uh, right now, the, the Warriors and the Celtics, uh, uh, you know, the, they're going and uh, in the NBA finals, if there's something that you could go, maybe there's a, instead of having that ticket stub, right, that you went to a finals game, and you were able to go and capture that digitally, and prove to people that you were there. There could be some value. Maybe there's something like a memento that you get just for attending digitally, right? Uh, maybe there's something like where you can go back of stage because you're a super fan and you can go and demonstrate that, right? So the people, they're still figuring it out. And in fact, NBA Top Shot, they have done some of this where they, they've had uh, contests and then they've taken some of their collectors and uh, allowed them into the games. So they're still trying to experiment and think about like, okay, this digital side, how do we go and combine it with the, the reality, the real world? And so, uh, you know, we'll probably, they'll have to go and experiment. And this is why there's, uh, they haven't figured it out. But yeah, I mean, to your point, really at the end of the day, Eric, I guess, uh, um, you know, value, it's, uh, it comes down to whatever the market is willing to go and pay for it. And who knows? I mean, maybe we will see some some of that. I mean, it's funny because originally, like even certain things like Bitcoin, people thought that, it, you know, especially uh, uh, certain people from a criminal uh, standpoint, uh, these transactions that can be anonymous. And in fact, <laughs> well, yeah. And, and in fact, actually by going and having it on that ledger, they were able to go and track down a lot of those, uh, the authorities, right? And so this is where they didn't realize um, uh, you, you actually are now uh, going and, uh, you know, creating that paper trail, right? So, yeah, exactly. I mean, the reason you just say, well, it's just, it's not inflationary was the idea. It was a FU to the monetary system. I don't think it was so much about privacy. I mean, if you really wanted privacy, you should trade in silver coins or something like that. Like, what are you doing on the blockchain? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> changing something that, that you can doesn't have a paper trail don't create a forever digital paper trail oh man sorry for those who didn't want to know anything about nfts or the blockchain we are now back to our regular <laughs> but i found that interesting because i didn't understand completely how this works and i haven't really looked into it yeah. so i appreciate chris your your explanation because that's much more uh, concrete because I've never I've never heard of a lot of examples. I just thought it was for like stupid, stupid. Well, and the, stuff, I mean, look at like you play video videos. games, right? Uh, I think yeah. where I could see like a really good application of this. Uh, imagine I don't know if you're playing like Call of Duty and uh, you're able to go and get certain you know items, and now you could put that and showcase it to people as part of uh, you know what you've been able to acquire right like there's there's things like that and i could even see it from a marketing standpoint i mean maybe the, you know nike releases some shoes that you have digital version that you can put into a game but then you have the physical version as well right so yeah that's that's a good that i mean for collectibles i can see that in gaming i one of the things in gaming and and devices like, like digital stuff in general or just digital software um you know, it would be nice to be able to uh, have a track so I could 
I can resell it to somebody. Like what if I buy a digital game and I don't want to play it anymore? It's one of the reasons that, you know, it's funny. I have a game console um, and I have an Xbox Series X and someone's like, why would you buy that? Just buy the digital one. Why would you buy one at the disc drive? Well, I like to buy used games and put the disc in yeah. and it works. And if I don't want to use it anymore, I can take it and sell it. I have thousands and thousands of print books because I have something, right? And so like if a game went out of print and it print production, right? They weren't offering it for sale anymore and it had only ever been digital. It would be nice to have proof that it's a real copy, that it would work and to be able to sell it on a marketplace to somebody, even just to get rid of it to, so I can put it towards something else, right? Because that's the problem with a lot of digital goods. There's no used market. The idea of a used market, though, for something that's infinitely copyable seems insane. Yeah. Well, and but I understand there's limited yeah. scarcity. Well, and and you know the thing is, like on the video game side of things, if you look at it, like Microsoft got huge pushback when they were trying to get everybody to just buy digital games, uh, and it was exactly to your point. I mean, and, and imagine if they were able to go and do that, uh, companies like EB Games would be completely out of business, right? Uh, because there is a resale. If you look at it in the in the long run, what's going and this is like it's already happening. I mean, in fact, actually, I know uh, uh, somebody who actually was uh, involved in a tech startup here in uh, Calgary that got sold uh, is the head of Xbox Cloud. Uh, her name's Catherine, and uh, mm. you know, Xbox that's their plan right now, and you see it even on Netflix, right? Netflix has all of their games. Uh, there's a bunch of games that you can go and download just off of your phone. And uh, it's it's getting to the point where I don't think downloading or owning that thing, it's, it's basically everybody is going towards the subscription kind of model, right? And uh, yeah, I can, I, yeah, that's true. I can see that. Though I do see a problem with that because it's, it's an ongoing cost that adds up quick. I, I've dumped a lot of subscriptions, uh, apps, all sorts of stuff, because I'm like, forget it. Yeah. So I, I, I wonder at some point if this will hit saturation, but we'll have to see. Yeah, for sure. Um, there was a, and again, this is another publication I haven't heard of. So apologies, folks. For, I haven't really vetted the publications. It just, you know, when I find ed tech articles, which are slim this time of year, uh, this is from Digital Journal. So I don't know what this is, but it says the ed tech technology market was valued at 105 billion just over 100 and well, almost 106 billion in 2021 <laughs> it's expected to be 302 billion five uh by 2028 yeah uh, mostly because of 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 growth in ed tech there's nothing particularly interesting in this article like the details are kind of vague but it's interesting that there's this report um that was done a global education technology market by segmented by sector and this port, this uh, report was done by, let me just check it. I think it's from SkyQuest. Yeah, it looks like it. Or some website or some huge consulting firm. They want $4,000 for this report, which I find really funny. I'm not going to pay that. Um, and they have a snapshot of the market. And so the largest sections of the market, uh, you know, wh where the growth is. Uh, overwhelmingly, like North America and Asia, uh, which doesn't surprise me. Um, yeah, so it just talks about the growth. I only brought put this in to talk a little bit about 
um, because it feeds into another article uh, that we had, which I have misplaced. No, that's from the conversation, yeah. which taught, which says ed tech is treating students like products. So I brought that up. That's kind of a setup. So there's this huge growth in ed tech, which confirms our prediction that there would be huge growth in the market of something. We have to double check our predictions at the end of the year, but our, the trend is continuing. But this article from the conversation about ed tech treating students like products is interesting because there was a, there was a human rights watch report uh, that they were reporting on and, and you can go read that. They're linked from the original lockdown. Uh, just looking at, um, you know, which uh, ed tech tools were gathering data on students. So like across the like K to 12, uh, higher education. So this is a huge privacy problem, right? Yeah. So uh, Human Re uh, Rights Watch reviewed 164 ed tech products. So these are the commonly used ones, by the way, if you go to the list, like this is not like some fringe list, uh, including 10 of the many apps and websites used in Australian schools. So this is, you know, a case study there. According to its report, I'm quoting here, New South Wales and Victorian education departments endorsed the use of six of these, including Zoom, Minecraft, Education, and Microsoft Teams. So big players, right? The review found that to varying degrees, these apps and websites harvested children's personal location or learning data to monitor and traffic or profile students. These practices ultimately violated uh, children's digital rights to privacy. And of course, in Australia, there's some pretty strict legislation around that. So what we talked about in our predictions was just that, you know, privacy is going to be a problem, yeah. particularly in the first year we did this. And of course, this article goes on to talk about, you know, legislation that the government could impose to make this. And I don't, I'm not convinced that that'll actually do anything because the market always finds a way around it. But it's just uh, an example of, you know, how we have to keep, you know, it's not just Facebook that tracks people. It's if you have a proctoring app that watches you as you do stuff like this is, you're, it's different in an education environment because you're forcing people to use those tools to get a grade so they have to pass to get onto the next grade, right? Or take, like in many cases, this is, we're making people use these tools through coercion. It's not like they opted in. Yeah. But I mean, even some things that you wouldn't even think about, like, I mean, you, you just highlighted some mainstream like Zoom and Microsoft Teams. And I mean, even beyond that, how, how many instructors use YouTube videos just and, you know, here Google that owns uh, YouTube, they're going and collecting that data and then mining it for who knows what purposes, probably to go and pitch other uh, videos and content to go and consume. Oh, absolutely. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of abhorrent to see the kinds of uh, data that's being collected on people. And, you know, it, for many years, uh, I think it was concerned to be true, you know, data, data, for a long time, you know, Facebook was accused of kind of like gathering web data on people who didn't even have Facebook profiles, kind of creating, I don't know if it was ever proven, but it was, a, it was claimed that there was these shadow profiles being made for people for when you inevitably join their service, right? Like that's kind of creepy. But the fact that we're seeing this in, in education, um, it, it is a somewhat concerning because especially, in, you know, in all education, but, you know, critical thinking and, and essay writing and having a space for people to have bad ideas so they can think through problems is pretty key to an educational 
or to a good education. So the idea that, you know, some app is tracking your, you know, terrible arguments of your first presentation or your draft paper or something like that is a little bit concerning. Yeah, for sure. Because we've already seen this kind of canceling of people for, you know, uh, you know, an unformed idea. They're kind of thinking they're talking through a problem in a classroom. Someone's videotaped to put it out, framed it as if they're, you know, part of some hate group or something. And then, but they're just working through a problem because it's a exercise, which is exactly what everybody has to do. It's, it's, that's bad enough. But the idea that something is like capturing what you do as you do it. Yeah. I think is a kind of a problem. I think universities and, you know, institutions have to be pretty accountable. They should really vet the data policies on some of these tools, unless they're being left in the dark, which is quite possible. I mean, it's possible, but again, I mean, these are things that uh, unfortunately in the education sector, there's a lot of us uh, having to do some catch up. And uh, I think people have to uh, understand there's, um, uh, there's a lot of unintended consequences right, that come out of this. And so we, we kind of have to think about it. And that's why, I mean, really at the end of it, that other article that uh, with that report, there is going to be a huge increase in ed tech companies is because there's these problems are huge, right? And it, it is a growing industry again. I mean, that's one of the reasons why when we even made the prediction, why are all these companies like, you know, Apple and Microsoft and uh, you know Google. Why are they going into the education sector? Is because if they want to get to the next trillion, they have to go after big, huge industries, which uh, the education industry is one of the biggest. And it's, uh, it's from a society yeah. standpoint, it's something that is uh, considered right across uh, every um, you know country that I can see is uh, something that is very well regarded that all people have to go through the education system. Right. So, and uh, again, yeah. we tell people to get a good education. Yeah. Well, and, and this is where I think with, there is opportunity. I mean, even some of the things that I mentioned, like, you know, having more of these smart uh, classrooms and augmented reality and, uh, you know, virtual reality, there's all these technologies that we could probably enhance the learning environment um, quite a bit. Uh, but again, it's still uh, a lot of experimentation, a lot of things that you kind of have to think through, right? Yeah, I 100% agree. And I, it'll be interesting to see as time goes on what what data has been collected on people. Because part of it is, you know, uh, you know, basic usage data, how people are, how often are they opening our product? How much bandwidth does it take? That's not really a big deal. I don't have a problem with that. It's more the profiling. So yeah. I, we'll have to see, wait and see uh, once there's been some more investigations, I suppose. Should we go on to the app of the month or apps of the month? Sure. Um, sticking with privacy, I did uh, relinquish myself from using LastPass. LastPass has had several breaches over the years. They're owned by kind of a private equity group, which makes me somewhat concerned about their future because uh, those private equity groups are famous for like, you know, extracting all value and running the, pro the company into the ground. It's also a proprietary password manager, uses its own proprietary security. So I figured I would as painful as it was, I exported everything mostly from LastPass into my new password manager called Bitwarden. So I've been using that for the past, I don't know, three weeks, two weeks. And I'm happy to report that other than a few usability things, it is by far the superior password manager 
and it's free. Um, if you want a premium account, it is a fifth of the cost. I think it's only like with tax Canadian, it was like up $12 a year instead of 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever I was paying. Um, and you can share with other people without having to have a family account. Um, there's a kind of a way to do it where that one person could use a free account and you could have a paid one kind of a thing. So it's a much more affordable option. It uses open source security. So uh, potentially a lot more secure. So that's one thing. Uh, I believe Apple has probably Sherlocked this other app. Yeah. I didn't even well, realize I mean, it, but I got a really great, sorry. And even, I don't know, on the password side of things, I mean, uh, maybe, who knows, you might have to switch again because uh, Apple, from the password manager side of things, they came out with their uh, Apple pass keys, which will allow you to go and- Well, no password. Yeah, just using your yeah. face ID and you won't even require a password, so. I will use that like a login feature as possible, though I have some issues with the whole passwordless thing because it's kind of tied to device and it's not clear how you move things from the device. But if you lose your device, that's the login plus biometrics. So I, I don't know that it's as easy uh, to get rid of passwords as they came. I suspect I'll always have to have some, or maybe it'll be some sort of hybrid, but that's quite possible yeah. too, right? Um, passwords for things that don't matter and perhaps passwordless or super security for the things that really matter. Um, I did get an app tip though, uh, from my colleague, Catherine Barrett at Mount Royal University Library. I thought this was a great tip, uh, because it's spring or summer and people garden and they identify things. Uh, I thought this had a huge use too. If you're, if you're interested in botany or some sort of plant education, or you're in that kind of field in the sciences and biology horticultural research, that kind of stuff. It's called picture this. And basically uh, you can take a photo of plants and it uses probably because it's, you know, had millions of people train it. It's really, really good at identifying things. And in fact, my colleague showed me just taking a photo of a tree stump bark, it was able to identify the tree. Oh, wow. Like it was like pretty amazing. So it's a really cool app. I thought for identifying uh, plants, um, if you're interested in that. Cool. And that's all I got for the app of, or the apps of the, of the month, not the week. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about Bitwarden before, so you, you you're saying that uh, people should go and maybe move to this. Hey, it's a free password manager. It's an open, so it's an open source tool. Um, you can save things to their cloud. So there's nothing that you need to pay them for. Um, I paid them for premium, which was much more affordable. Um, so like you can use multiple devices on it on the free account. It's what LastPass used to be. Yeah. The benefit is that the, 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 the premium allowed like me to set up a separate organization to share passwords, to keep things secure. I kind of like that better than having just a folder that says family. It's just a little bit more separate. Um, it's an, it, you know, the, it really comes down to the, you don't want it to get hacked and have everyone find your passwords. That's the deal breaker, right? Yeah. So it really comes down to the encrypt encryption method. Bitwarden uses an open source encryption method. So the, for those who are not aware, open source means everyone can see the code. So if there's a flaw in the code, it can be fixed. Um, proprietary methods may or may not be more secure, but nobody can know because only a handful of uh, people can see the code. So the argument is that all bugs are shallow when they're open source because there's millions of people who can see the code and look for flaws. It's like crowdsourcing. 
So they use an open source encryption protocol, which is typically better uh, for security because we know what we're dealing with. It's not like there's some vital flaw that only LastPass knows about and nobody else does because they don't have access to their proprietary stuff, right? So um, LastPass is good. I'm not saying they're bad. I still have an account with them. I still have some attachments on my LastPass that I haven't moved over. So I like, uh, you know, if I've uploaded a photo or something, I have to redo some of those. That's not a huge number, but everything else was easy to export. You just, ex you just tell it what you're exporting from. It took a bit of effort, but I was able to export everything into Bitwarden with all the folders and organization that I'm used to. And it's very affordable. I actually, the user interface is very bare bones, Chris. Um, but, you know, bare bones doesn't always mean worse, as you know. Yeah. And I, I, I honestly find it easier to use. It does a much better job of recognizing where a password needs to be autofilled on a website across pages within a given domain. So it doesn't get stuck and be like, there's no password for this. And it's like, yes, there is. And it typically gets it to me. Um, I find it to be a little bit simpler. Um, it's, you know, I use it on, I, I use it on mobile. I've used it everywhere and it, it seems to be fine. You can add your secure notes, your credit card, your login info. Um, you know, you have your vault. So it's very, very comparable. It's just a more of an open source product. And I just, I just, I like LastPass. I've been very happy with them, but I do find it a little bit slow and clumsy. I'm not a huge fan of their app. Yeah. Well, and especially like you and one password is expensive. Yeah, like you say, it's uh, and this is where um, you know the, they've changed their business model and uh, they've increased things uh, as well, right? So, but it, I mean, it's good at least uh, you know we've talked about it and now you're actually using it, so it's good that you shared uh, your experience so far. I'm very happy. All right, awesome. Uh, that's. Pretty much all we have today. Did you want to tell people where they can contact you? Yeah. So if you want to get a hold of me, uh, you can visit my website. Uh, it's uh, Chris with a K, so K R I S. Last name is Hans H A N S dot C A, and you can find all my uh, social media handles and so on. And I am Eric Christensen. Um, you can contact me through my website, which is ericchristensen.net. I also maintain a tech blog, Tech Bytes tech-bytes.net, which I post on occasionally. And I also have my Twitter account, uh, which is at EG Christensen. Uh, I don't check it very often, but you know, I do post things from the, find things from there and post them to my pin board, et cetera. All right, cool. Awesome. So thanks so much, Chris. I'll catch you the next yeah. time. Till next time. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.